Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Lisa, you know, as we make our way towards New Year's Eve, I'm going to make a call here. I'm going to say that people are going to drink a little bit more champagne than they typically do. What do you think? That they typically do in quarantine or just in general? <laughs> I think just I think this is going to be a big year for champagne as we get to New Year's Eve. Let's talk champagne. There's nobody better to do that with than champagne. There some. you go. Blaine Ashley, founder, New York Champagne Week, and the Fizz is Female platform and website joining us on the phone from New York. Uh, Blaine, thanks so much for joining us. I'm looking at a beautiful bottle of champagne right here. My question is, what is – Champagne? Are people drinking more champagne in a pandemic and a quarantine than typically? Well, first off, thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. And yes, the answer is yes. People are drinking a lot more champagne. They're actually spending <laughs> more money on wine in general. Um, sales have been up 30% for wow. champagne since June, since mid-June. So usually most of the revenue uh, for the champagne industry comes in October, November, December. We call it OND. But we've been doing those numbers. 70% of our sales come from that time frame. We've been doing those numbers since June. Okay, virtual tastings. What yes. is that? Is that a real thing? I mean, do people actually do that and feel satisfied with that? Um, it is such a real thing because, as you know, as I'm the founder of New York Champagne Week, which has been a live event for the last seven years, we transitioned to the web this year. In one week, we did 10 events. We shipped the champagne experiences to 39 states, and we had over 200 people purchase tickets across the country to attend events like the Fried Chicken and Champagne Bash, which we did with Marcus Samuelson of, of uh, Red Rooster in your backyard, Lisa, in Harlem. I love and, that you know where I live. My God. <laughs> well, yeah. And then we, we also um, we paired him up with a, a champagne brand owner that's also based in Harlem, Rita Jamey for La Caravelle Champagne. I have actually done 43 virtual tastings since <laughs> May through December, and that's why I love half bottles because they're keeping the waistline in check, pennies in my pocket, um, right. all of that jazz, and they're, they're much healthier for you all around, right? So that's why I'm loving half bottles of champagne, which that business is way up, like 50%. So, Blaine, so people are drinking more. Uh, we've heard that from yes. different parts of this of the spirits uh, industry. Are you finding new champagne drinkers? Are you attracting new people to champagne? I think so. I think that people are really looking for those little affordable luxuries in life. And so through a lot of the events and the tastings we're doing, we're trying to make it very approachable. Like right now, I have my bottle of Charles Heidsteck open with some popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> and the newest uh, craze with caviar is instead of it's ditching the Bellinis, but putting it on a potato chip. So it's kind <laughs> of like all about like the approachable um, and the diversity that champagne has to offer, a diversity but also champagne is the most food-friendly wine out there. It really pairs from everything, really, that you can find. And then also, um, champagne is lower than lower in alcohol. Uh, so it generally falls in the 12% category, whereas a standard still wine will be around 14%. 
I got to say, I'm not sure that you want to reduce alcohol in 2020. Actually, I shouldn't even joke about that. But I'm wondering, uh, going forward, this concept of virtual paired with actual, how do you see this evolving in a world that isn't necessarily uh, beset with pandemic woes? Right. So after Champagne Week, and this is something I never saw coming as a total small business and one-woman show, I started having financial firms and banks, um, uh, companies reach out to me to do uh, virtual tastings for their clients. So I actually did a few uh, champagne and caviar experiences for Google. I've done some um, fromage and fizz, so like cheese and champagne tastings for banks like J.P. Morgan. Um, I never saw that coming. I actually booked, we booked about 10 events between December 8th and 18th. Um, uh, for people that are, are switching up their, you know, they can't do traditional client entertaining, so they're looking to do this instead. Um, so, another great uh, way that we're getting uh, these virtual tastings out there and giving back to the food and beverage industry, which is obviously hurting majorly right now, is doing a lot of chef collaborations. A lot of these chefs are offering items on sites like Gold Belly, which can ship to 50 states, and they're offering their like signature dish and delivering it to people's doorstep the day before so they can prepare it at home and have these great experiences. Blaine, what are some of the champagnes that uh, you like right now that you're really suggesting people that they take some time and experiment with? Right. So I selected some today to chat about. Um, we have the Charles Hyde Segbert Reserve. That is a great champagne to start off your festivities for the holidays with like cheese and charcuterie boards, something like that. Um, it is a blend of the three traditional grapes and champagnes, so Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Meunier, and it's 11 grams of dosage, which is the sugar. And that's another great thing about champagne. It actually has a lower sugar content than people realize. Most brute champagnes fall between 6 and 12 grams per liter. Um, so that is an excellent um uh, uh, talking point about champagne and reason you should be drinking it. Yep. And then moving on, um, we have uh, Billicar Simone Blanc de Blanc. Now, Blanc de Blanc is 100% Chardonnay, and Chardonnay is great with fish. So I would pair that with a Feast of Seven Fishes Christmas Eve dinner. Ah, Hands down. Maybe also if you want to up the ante again, we love caviar and champagne. That's a great pairing. And then uh, you have the Soubois, I believe, Paul, correct? Uh, I do, I and do. And that is excellent with your classic Christmas dinner, traditional holiday foods like, you know, turkey, uh, mushrooms, stuffing. I love duck, so I love it with duck. Oh, perfect. And then I believe that Lisa has a Laurent Perrier Coupe Rosé, and <laughs> we love to pair rosé with dessert around here. So ah. um, that that's a great pairing with apple pie, a, a pecan pie, any sort of like fruit tart. Also, if you're not into like sweets, I'm kind of a more of a cheese person. So you could do creamy cheeses, citrusy jams and figs. Um, something like that would be perfect with that rosé. And it's also a stunning bottle, right? It's beautiful. I'm actually uh, tasting another one that you sent over currently because it pairs really so well with the radio the, show. Yeah, um, so that, that's the look. I believe, are, are you having the Charles Hyde stick or the La Caravelle? I'm doing um, the Cuvée Nina. Yes, so the La Caravelle Cuvée Nina, and that's what I set off the top. Um, that has been my go-to. Sorry, I, I guess I had too much of it. <laughs> no, 
That has been my go-to Zoom line of the season. And because the brand owner lives in New York, it's been really great for collaboration's sake. She's able to kind of hop on to a lot of these events. So everything we're offering on our website right now for virtual anytime booking, uh, we do with Rita, the owner of Wacaravel, because she's there. And who better to speak to um, her champagne for these Zoom experiences than than the founder herself. And what's great is Rita used to own a iconic restaurant in Midtown called La Caravelle. It closed in 2003, but it was like Kennedy's hotspot, Martha Stewart, like tons of glitter, Julia Child, tons of glitterati went there. And she is like best friends to every single chef in New York. So we have access to these chefs because of the founder of La Caravelle, Rita Jamais. Champagne Blaine, you made my Thursday afternoon absolutely fantastic. (laughs) You made it a little bit hairy for Paul, who's a little concerned. I haven't drunk that much. I just opened it at the beginning of the segment. Champagne Blaine, thank you so much. That was fantastic. And I look forward to a very, very fun evening. Champagne Blaine Ashley, founder of the New York Champagne Week and the Fizz is Female platform website, joining us on the phone. Ugh. It is a yeah. nice way to end the week, I've got to say, Paul. Absolutely, and the bottles are beautiful. And uh, you know, I've, I'm not a huge champagne person. I know a lot of folks are, well, but it's I time be to get enjoying... started, Paul. This Come is on. the time to get started. Uh, champagne Blaine definitely uh, got me fired up to open this bottle uh, probably this evening. Yeah, <laughs> open up a bottle of anything. Bloomberg Radio, 2020. What a year. Uh, we're all looking forward Amazing to 2021. <laughs> exactly. Best year uh, ever for everyone. Uh, just uh, unbelievable. And, you know, it's amazing how these financial markets have reacted. We think, Lisa, back to uh, the depths in that March and April and just the panic in the marketplace. But then the Federal Reserve comes to the rescue. Fiscal stimulus comes to uh, the rescue. And we have this major uh, turnaround in the markets. Now, here we are. A couple of days left in the year. The question is, what do we do next year? Alan. Zafrin, founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital, based in Foster City and Los Angeles, California. He joins us now. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it on Christmas Eve. Again, what a year. I'd love to get your thoughts on 2021. How are you positioning uh, your portfolio? Uh, Lisa and Paul, happy holidays. Thank goodness we're going to get through this year. Yeah, we will. Um, Absolutely. There's still a couple of days left, though. Let's not jinx it. Carry on. All right. Uh, here's the long and short of it. If you talk to almost any analyst, they'll tell you we're going to go up in the U.S. stock market next year. And the reason is you're going to see U.S. economic growth the fastest it's been since the mid-'80s. And that's because when you pump literally nearly 50% worth of GDP in the form of monetary and fiscal stimulus, which is what we have done this year. You're setting yourself for a boom on the back end of that. So again, with all due respect to the horrific, horrific elements of health crises and literally social and economic crises, and we clearly have problems with inequality. As it relates to the stock market, the money's got to go somewhere. And when cash is giving you nothing, And when bonds give you so little, risk appetites perk up. And with that massive amount of money, equities move higher and other risk assets move higher. All things equal. There's plenty of risks and bumps. But the base case is we keep grinding higher, largely because the money's got to go somewhere. That's your story for 2021. So another way of putting this, perhaps, is that in 2021, it'll sort of be like what we saw in the second half of 2020, 
nothing really matters except for the money keeps keeps flowing. So you might as well buy stocks. Is that the same thing? Yeah, with luck, yes. With let me give you a little bit of nuance. So <laughs> please, you know, <laughs> give you an example. I don't know if you know this, but Brexit finally passed. Today. Yeah. Like, I heard about that. Nobody we... cared. The markets didn't move. Yeah. Right. How many years have we obsessed about that darn thing? Uh, frankly, it's a modest positive. It's not a not actually that big of a deal, but it's a modest positive. But um, you know, one thing that is. Um, uh, a good and a bad is if the economy really improves and broadens out, you will finally see this rotation to a degree anyway, where you start to see the smaller companies perform as well as the larger com- stocks. And you start to see the value industries do as well as the technology and growth related stocks. And so it may actually be a year where it's a little deceptive. And what I mean by that is our indexes in the U S are now dominated by technology companies. It's possible We'll see a year where the average stock is doing better than that index. The index being market cap weighted, so the big technology companies comprise a big part of that index. It could be oddly enough a year. The index doesn't go up too much, and actually a bunch of individual stocks do modestly better because as the economy picks up, businesses that are a lower quality and need economic growth are going to get a little bit of a pickup next year. So industrial stocks, financial stocks, selected consumer-oriented stocks might actually do a little better than the Apples and Facebooks and Microsofts of the world. Um, That's sort of the other element of 2021 is maybe we'll get a broadening of uh, market, stock market uh, recovery, and that will kind of help everybody a little bit. Do you embrace that rotation trade there, Alan? It's, It's certainly been successful here, you know, over the last several months. I guess a lot of folks are just saying, how much legs does that uh, cyclical trade, that rotation trade, have in 2021? How do you think about that? Now, coming from a guy right here in Silicon Valley, I'm going to be a heretic and tell you I think there's an element of truth, so I embrace it, <laughs> but only, but you know, only to a modest degree. It's like you know, bulls and bears make bulls and bears make money, and pigs don't. Um, I think you're crazy to just think I'm going to rotate entirely out of the large cap tech names and go into small cap, low value companies. That's not the trade. You still want to be in strong balance sheet businesses that generate consistent growth. And so you can find, again, financials, industrials, consumer staples that meet that description without being a technology company. And I still think you've got to be balanced. Um, between Putting all your eggs in one basket is just a reckless strategy, and it also drives a lot of transactional activity and taxes. So, you know, just be prudent about it. Don't, you know, you don't have to find the next Tesla. Just keep balance. But, yeah, I, I do embrace the fact the economy is going to strengthen, and I do think the market uh, will broaden out the participation, and I think it will end up being a good year. Not, not an amazing year, but a good year. And the risks um, include the outcome of the Georgia election in that the market doesn't want to see corporate tax rates higher. So if, if both seats on January 5th go to a Democrat, it's possible the market won't react well because there will be a perception corporate tax rates might ultimately hike as a result. We certainly need to see the distribution of the vaccines working. Uh, And then lastly, ironically, even though you want great economic growth, you don't want the economic growth to be so strong as to create an inflation scare. So if you see interest rates spiking, spiking up towards 2% on a 10-year treasury bond too quickly, we'll get some hiccup in the stock market because this market is built on low interest rates supporting the current higher-than-average valuations. 
once rates get high enough, it gets to the point where they compete with taking, you know, stocks. But I don't think we're going to be in a protracted inflationary environment for at least another couple of years for all sorts of reasons, including our aging population. Older individuals tend to spend less, and we still have some elements of benefit of technology and productivity uh, preventing inflation from coming to play. So that's 2021. It's a good environment, not a great environment for stocks and a broadening uh, economic outlook. We're speaking with Alan Safran, founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital. Uh, you said a lot there. Uh, let's unpack one aspect. You were talking about the Georgia elections and how a Democratic outcome, if, if the Democrats ended up taking leadership in the Senate, that could be a negative for the market because of higher regulation and taxes. This actually is a, a bit contrarian because some people think it's a positive for the market due to more fiscal support. Can you sort of talk about the balance between those two risk factors? Yeah, absolutely. So um, various analysts, economists have projected that if corporate tax rates, as stated initially by the Biden platform in the campaign, and of course it could all change, um, if those corporate tax rates rose from 21 to 28 percent, it would reduce the earnings per share of the S&P 500 by anywhere from 9 to 15 percent. So in a vacuum, wow. he said, all we're going to do is raise corporate tax rates. I could argue that if PE multiples stay the same, I could argue that your market's going to take a 9 to 15% hit. You could also give me the argument that a Democratic administration, all things equal, might be slightly more regulatory on technology companies, which comprise part of the index, which could even worsen stock market reactions as well. On the other hand, there is absolutely a belief that such an administration will meaningfully increase infrastructure spending, which is desperately needed, and other forms of fiscal spending, which will clearly amplifies consumer spending and, um, and U.S.-directed corporate spending. And again, now talking about analysts uh, and economists, I've seen uh, ranges uh, arguing that that could actually increase uh, earnings pressure on a magnitude of anywhere from 7 to 12 percent. So I would argue it's a modest negative. Ultimately, I think it's got more headline risk than ultimate economic impact, and it shifts where the winners and losers are. It actually amplifies what we just talked about in a broadening economy. All things equal, those perspectives target technology companies which historically have not paid high taxes. It's going to force them to pay higher taxes, and they might be under greater regulation. The businesses that benefit from greater infrastructure spending tend to be more cursory, basic industry, economically sensitive companies. So it's another argument towards the rotation. I'd argue you would get a head with if both seats go to Democrats in Georgia, I think you'll get a knee-jerk reaction down, you know, pick your number, it'll take a week or two, maybe the market goes down, pick a number, 5 to 10%. I think that's a knee-jerk reaction, and it's the proverbial buying opportunity. In the long run, companies will do just fine, profits will be made, and those that are fortunate enough to have savings in an IRA or, you know, in their own personal accounts, I think they will benefit by owning stocks. So you get a knee-jerk reaction down, it's not a permanent erosion of someone's wealth. Alan, you mentioned uh, you're in Silicon Valley. One of the stories in 2020, uh, maybe starting in 2019, was the increased regulatory oversight from U.S. US officials, not just European officials, but uh, regulators, Congress. What's the feeling in the Valley right now about kind of the regulatory environment as it relates to uh, tech? It's historically been a very light touch. Are they concerned it's going to get a little heavier? Yes. Uh, but I would tell you, um, everyone around here is always paranoid. And so <laughs> that doesn't change anything. You always 
hope for the best and plan for the worst. Uh, another story we're not covering much today is take a look at Alibaba's stock. Alibaba's yeah, stock today is down 15%, and it's down 30% from its peak. Why? Because the Chinese regulators have said, we don't like Alibaba's anti, um, uh, you know, it's, it's monopolistic policies, and we're going to go after them. And that's exactly what these large cap, largest cap tech companies fear. By the way, lots of the small entrepreneurs, smaller companies of entrepreneurs around here, they love that because... They want to be able to, you know, have a more competitive or fair marketplace. So there's two sides of that coin. There's absolutely concern that there will be greater elements of regulation, but usually the bark is worse than the bite. So there's a belief that the regulation probably won't get to the point that it's demonstrably punitive to the business business models. Again, a modestly negative impact, and probably the headlines will actually be worse than the actual damage to the business model in the long run. It's going to be hard for you to convince me that companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Google are going to lose permanent uh, competitive advantages given their scale and first mover advantage in their respective uh, businesses they've entered into. Before we let you go, Alan, what are you doing for the uh, new year and the holidays? Um, I'm going to be doing reading a few books, uh, Think Big, Essentialism. Uh, I'm going to take a few walks in the Redwoods and... uh, Clear my mind and uh, hope and pray for a much better 2021 for everyone at every socioeconomic level. This has been a really tough year, so I'm, I have a lot of gratitude and I'm counting my blessings. That's what wow. I'm doing. How about, a wonderful how about message. You? Thank you. Alan Safran, I'm doing probably about half of that, maybe a quarter, <laughs> maybe an eighth. Definitely less ambitious, that's for sure. No reading. Definitely not a walk in the Redwoods. Trying to wrangle kids. Walk Alan's after it. Found walk a- in Central Park. That's 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 okay. sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'll check out the mud from the snow and the rain. <laughs> Alan Zaffron, founding partner and co-chief executive officer at IEQ Capital, uh, talking about the redwoods and some lofty goals and really, really wonderful market calls. Thank you for everything, Alan. I will say, in all seriousness, Paul, it actually has been beautiful because after it snowed, it was great. It was going yes. out sledding. It was going out and enjoying the city. And now we're facing down with a very wet. Christmas Eve and Christmas Yes, it's going to be windy, so it's going to be tough out there for Santa and the sled, but hopefully he'll be okay. Yeah, I know that you're worried about him. Yes. He'll, he'll make it through, I promise. This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. 12 minutes left before the end of the shortened trading day here ahead of Christmas. We're thinking about all of the things to come that will be nice and bubbly, just like the champagne (laughs) that we were just talking about and now drinking. Joining us now to discuss the outlook for perhaps an area that needs to see brighter days if you look in some of the bigger cities, but certainly is seeing brighter days if you look at the likes of Florida is Bonnie Stone Sellers and Jeff Highland, co-founders of Forbes Global Properties, uh, taking a look at the luxury outlook. Look, uh, just to give you a sense of what Forbes Global Properties is, it's a luxury portal membership only for elite real estate firms showing high-end residences across the world. So, Bonnie, if you could just start by giving us a sense of what you do and how much interest you have seen at a time of such bifurcated fortunes. It's, it's an incredibly interesting time to be launching a consumer marketplace and an elite uh, brokerage network. 2020 was clearly the year of the home, and although there are a few cities 
that didn't do as well in the luxury real estate world. Nearly every place around the world in luxury was reflective of people wanting bigger homes, people wanting second homes, people wanting vacation homes. And accordingly, home sale prices doubled in the past, uh, home sales doubled in the past year. But we see 2021 as being even better for the luxury housing market. There's so much pent-up demand, and foreign buyers will then be going back after the vaccine into lots of markets. And we also see um, what a great time for a digital platform. If, if uh, nothing else, uh, the COVID year has taught us that everyone buys things online, looks at things online, and uh, doesn't matter what the price of the home is, it'll start with digital. So we're pretty upbeat about uh, the luxury market and our platform. Hey, Jeff, give us a sense of kind of the geographic strengths and weaknesses just, you know, around the world or wherever you're seeing kind of the real demand. Because here in New York City, it seems like everybody's leaving for Florida. What can you tell us? Well, you know, that's a momentary thing. We all hope everyone comes back to New York. Uh, but then you look at areas like the Hamptons and, and Florida, maybe for taxes, Austin, again, for taxes. Southern California, it, it, it's a boom time again. Uh, and I hate to say that COVID had something to do with it, but I had a, um, a client whose house we have for sale were nine digits uh, who, who was asked the question, do you know what caused the Roaring Twenties? And he said, no, I don't. And the person answered him, it was the Spanish flu. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, all that pent-up demand from two years and deaths and no one doing anything just got everybody out. They wanted to party. They wanted to spend money. They wanted to play. So he said he feels the same thing's going to happen in 21, 22, 23, 24, and uh, we could have a whole other boom time. Uh, and unfortunately, the way that we're going with um, you know, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer uh, it is affecting the high end of the market, and what Brian I've created here with Forbes Global Properties is a luxury portal. It's basically going to be the, the Zillow of, of high net worth individuals, and we'll be able to attract, as we've already had, we're like 12 days out now uh, since we launched our website, uh, to really attract and direct the high net worth individual uh, to the site, and then we'll have them contact directly with our individual agents on the portal. And uh, we're just we're terribly excited about it. The Roaring Twenties, i got to say, Paul, this is what you buy into, right? You think it's going to be do. the Roaring Twenties, the 2020s? I do, and uh, I absolutely do. I think it's the, the similarities are pretty telling. So, uh, Bonnie, I mean, one of the things driving you know real estate in general and certainly the high end are just these record low interest rates here. What are your buyers of luxury properties? How sensitive are they to interest rates? Yeah, I don't think that um, buyers of high-end properties are particularly sensitive to interest rates. Uh, of course, low interest money is available, and that helps on any purchase. But uh, the luxury market is often an all-cash market, and uh, that's more or less a global phenomenon. Um, having said that, I think that um, the, the um, uh, real estate markets overall will definitely benefit from the low interest rates. 
There's a question, Jeff, going back to what you were talking about with the Roaring Twenties, I find really compelling, which is, I think about the Great Gatsby and the Hamptons and the scene there. Is that what we're going to do a repeat of? Or is it going to take place in Austin, in Florida? Is it going to take place in new places uh, because of tax reasons, because of other reasons? Well, you know the whole thing about East Egg. It was one big mansion on the North Shore. What we're talking about now are, are people with multiple homes around the world. And almost every home that we sell in Beverly Hills, it's $50 million and up, it's not the primary residence. It could be the fourth, the fifth, the sixth home. So it, it's, so, such, it's so well spread out. And one of the things that attracted Bonnie and me to create Forbes Global Properties is that we now have people from all over the world. We're already in 75 markets. And they come from everywhere. There were waves when maybe you had a certain group who would, let's say, uh, Middle Easterners would come to the United States, or then you had had Venezuelans going to Florida, et cetera, et cetera. We've had that whole cycle. So now it's a little of everything coming from everywhere, and it no longer has a distinction of, well, this is the year of the Chinese uh, getting their money out of China. It's, it's, it's coming from everywhere, and I think we'll see throughout uh, the United States uh, people from every portion uh, going, whether it's for business or uh, it's for pleasure or it's even tax avoidance. But uh, uh, we're going to see a boom in, in the high-end luxury market continue. Hey, Bonnie, Jeff our, was just talking about... Go ahead, Bonnie. Can I jump in? Sure. Yeah, our portal is not just for the ultra-high-net-worth individual. It's a consumer marketplace. Forbes is uh, an incredibly well-respected business brand with 100 years history and 140 million unique uh, visitors every month who, you know, will be chaperoned to our website. And, uh, you know, there will be lots of people. All of your audience comes from many industries. They all have one thing in common, and that's that they all have homes. So we think there's a very broad spectrum of, of, of consumers who would love to come to our marketplace and see the homes. Hey, Bonnie and Jeff, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Bonnie Stone Sellers and Jeff Highland, co-founders of Forbes Global Properties, uh, joining us. Talks about the luxury market here. It's uh, like everything else in this uh, pandemic has taken a pause, but uh, there's certainly a bullish call out there for uh, luxury properties going forward, Lisa. And I think, uh, you know, there's, it'll be interesting to see how New York fares, for example. Yeah, well, it's not as desolate as you might think, Paul. I will tell you that. Good. That's good to hear. I'm, you know, I miss coming in. I look forward to doing it very soon. And uh, so, Lisa, have a great couple of days, weekends, you Christmas, too. and we get into the new year. We'll have more for you on a Bloomberg Radio coming up. There's a question heading into year end of whether this uh, deal that was passed with bipartisan support by uh, by Congress to give $900 billion to help support and plug the gap in people's finances as a result of the pandemic, of whether President Trump will now veto it and what the implications are. Joining us now, Jeannie Zeno, Bloomberg Opinion contributor and professor at political of political science at Iona College. Jeannie, what's the thinking that President Trump has in vetoing this bill, vetoing the defense bill uh, like he did last night. What's he going for? You know, it really, I mean, it's been a wild couple days in Washington. And I think, you know, the, the answer is we don't quite know. We know that he has expressed reservations about the stimulus package. We know he's expressed reservations 
Obviously, that led to a veto of the defense bill. Um, there's a lot of speculation as to what his motives are, um, and I would not question those. But what we do know is that we have a Congress that could, a federal government that could shut down. Um, we have a Congress with a bill that hasn't quite reached the president's desk yet, but he could either sign that or veto it or do nothing. And if he either vetoes it or does nothing, it really not only puts Congress um, in, in a strange position, but it puts the American public in a strange position, as we will have um, 10 days before a pocket veto would go through, which would mean the Congress's session would end, a new Congress would come in, and this entire bill would be blown up. So we wouldn't get the COVID relief that people are seeking. So it, it, it's a really sort of tumultuous point that we're at at this point, And we really don't know where he's going to go. He's now down in Florida. And we don't know again whether he'll veto, sign, or simply do nothing. So, Jeannie, what's striking, well, there's many things that are striking about the last several days as it relates to the stimulus discussions. But the lack of coordination or even communication, it seems, between the White House and the Republicans in Congress. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, that's the strangest part of this, I think, for so many Republicans who said they not only had the cooperation, they had the administration in there as part of the negotiations. Steve Mnuchin, who Mitch McConnell and others praised on the Senate floor for getting this bill done. You had poor David Perdue, who is facing a runoff in January 5th in Georgia saying, tweeting out that they had done the work that was needed for Georgians and he was going home to fight for his election. All of them assuming and thinking they had the support of the White House. And then at the 11th hour, the president came in with this video. And, you know, just back to what Lisa was asking, you know, the sum of the speculation is the president is frustrated because Mitch McConnell, John Thune and other leaders in the Senate have said enough is enough about fighting for this election to be overturned. And it's his frustration that they no longer want to fight the Electoral College that led him to this path to blow that up. And that's purely speculation. But your point, he certainly put his own Republican Party in a very difficult position as they were led to believe he was supportive. And then at the end hour, he has come in with this massive bit of criticism. What does this do for the Georgia election? Makes it very difficult for Republicans. I mean, if anything, this is a gift to Democrats who, as we've seen, Nancy Pelosi tweeting, great, you know, we're going to move forward. We can try to get the $2,000 you want. It puts, you know, the Leffler and Purdue, who are in these runoffs in Georgia, in a very strange position. Remember, one of the reasons Mitch McConnell pushed Republicans to make this deal in, in the end uh, was because of Georgia, saying we can't keep the Senate if we don't have a deal that these senators can bring home to their constituents. They thought they had that, and now that's been blown up. It really, we're in sort of uncharted territory. Are Republicans really going to come out now and support Leffler and Purdue, given that they may not get the relief they were seeking, on top of which they have a president who has gone back and forth on whether they can even trust the electoral system in which they're supposed to be voting. So it really puts Republicans in a very difficult position for this runoff. And of course, if they lose both of these seats, then Mitch McConnell is no longer going to be majority leader and they will lose Washington um, because they will lose the Senate. What are the polls saying about um, uh, Georgia right now and can we believe those polls? Yeah, we've seen one of the fascinating um, sort of undertold stories about this race is that many of the public pollsters have pulled out of Georgia after the general election, in part because they were criticized for polling in a way that didn't turn out the way the results did, in part because of the timing. A lot of pollsters don't like to poll over the holidays. 
So we have very limited polling coming out of Georgia, and the polling we have shows it is too tight to call. Most of these polls that I've seen that are, again, the public polls are within the margin of error, meaning this thing could go either way. And I know people hate to hear this, but this really is a case of turnout. And Democrats seem to be turning out people in record numbers, but Republicans usually have an advantage historically in runoffs in a state like Georgia. So, again, this thing could go either way. A lot of investment managers have been watching the Georgia race and actually saying it could be a game changer for them, because if Democrats do take the majority in Senate, we could see a bigger fiscal support package or fiscal stimulus, even actual true stimulus that we could call it that. Do you think that people are a little ahead of themselves in that, given the moderate tilt of a lot of the Democrats that have gotten in? Yeah, I do think that I think it's the right way to be thinking about it. But I do think they're a little bit ahead of themselves, as you mentioned not only the moderate tilt of the Democrats who have gotten in, but also the fact that the House, the new Congress, will be more Republican than it was or is now. And also the fact that even if Democrats take the Senate, it is by the narrowest of margins. So I think any idea that we are going to see, if we had a Democratic Senate, that we would see a massive stimulus package, I think is not going to happen. And if you look back at the 2008-2009, what Barack Obama faced, He faced something very similar. He was never able to get the deal that most economists said he should because he couldn't get the moderate Democrats and enough of the Republicans to go along with him. And this is going to be even a narrower Senate. So I think the idea of a massive bill is something that we won't see. But I do think it's the right way to be thinking about it within the margins. If Democrats take the Senate, they obviously do have the upper hand on these things. The other prospect is this for Joe Biden, is that he is then going to be even more pressured by the liberals to deliver more. And it's going to be hard given the numbers are so slim. So there's also the the flip side of it, if you will, for Joe Biden, if they take the Senate. Jeannie, 20 seconds. I'd love to get your thoughts on just uh, all the pardons we're seeing from President Trump. Yeah, not surprising, but I think really devastating to the pardon, um, the, the pardon power that the president has. And I think the Blackwater ones, the ones that have to do with what happened in Iraq, particularly devastating for the U.S. military and U.S. justice overseas. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate your perspective. Jeannie Zeno, political contributor to Bloomberg News. She's also a professor of political science at Iona College, based in New Rochelle, New York. Uh, Just giving us her thoughts here on the stimulus. Seems to be bogged down a little bit here. Obviously, the last days, and it really is a time crunch, a cliff, if you will. Uh, Hopefully, progress can be made over the next several days. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.